In today's episode, I talk to Doug Austin, the author of Permission to Win, who spent most of his career building, growing, and selling ad agencies in the US. He tells us what it takes to make an agency an attractive proposition for a buyer, gleaned from his many years experience in consulting with agencies, and he talks about the benefits of employee stock ownership plans. We also hear Doug's thoughts on how AI-powered agencies are going to change the landscape. Hope you enjoy today's conversation. Welcome to the podcast. It'd be great if you could give me a bit of an introduction to who you are and a bit of your professional history. Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, great to be here. Thanks for having me today. I have Doug Austin. I have been in the advertising industry for my entire career, all the way back into my time at university. You know, I'm one of those who never did anything else, which is good. My career began in New York City on Madison Avenue for a, at the time, independent agency. This sort of in the mid-80s. They were, my first foray into mergers acquisitions was as Saatchi began to buy up agencies in the mid to late 80s. The agency I worked for at the time became part of uh, one of the Saatchi empires. And, you know, it was one of those extraordinary long names. The agency became, for a time... ACNR, DHB, and BESS. It was, you know, this string of acronyms, right? And so from my first couple of years in the business, I realized that this is probably the way it's going to go. And it did, right? So I went from New York to Texas, and I worked for a group called the Richards Group in Dallas for a time, and then bopped around that market for a bit, and then ultimately wound up in Missouri in the mid-90s and have been here ever since. We worked for a decent-sized independent shop and then went off and started to create a sort of a network of independent agencies with a legacy shop also in Missouri in the vertical that I had specialized in, which was food and beverage. And we did that 2008, ultimately grew it to three ad agencies and one product and menu development firm, all supporting the food and beverage industry. Went through an ESOP, which was interesting. And then ultimately were acquired in the summer of 2015. And I exited in 2016 and became a consultant around growth and innovation, mergers, acquisitions, exit strategies, culture, just sort of the, the full gamut of executive level and leadership roles inside the agency business. And uh, have been having a blast ever since, frankly. I really, you know, <laughs> all of the great things about staying connected with agency folks without, without the pressure of running an agency. So it's been pretty fantastic. Nice. Fantastic. Thank you very much. It's a good roundup. So this network agency that you put together, who was it that was working on that? And how did that all come about? How did that start? Sure. Yeah, pretty interesting. So I'll set the scene a little bit. The market that this all took place in is Springfield, Missouri which is not a very big market at all. It's not St. Louis, it's not Kansas City, even in the Midwest, it's a small market. So we had a lot of very specific talent that was brought in through another agency all around the food and beverage industry for the B2B side. So we had this influx of talent in a very niche industry in a pretty small market. And many of us, myself included, and my wife, who have we've worked side by side for 30 years, worked for one particular agency. And at some point, you know, we get to our point in our career where we say, you know, I think I want to strike out on my own or make a different deal or all that kind of good stuff. So yeah, that was 2008 for many of us. 
at this one particular agency in Springfield, Missouri. So I went first over to this smaller boutique shop in town that was an offshoot of the big agency that my wife and I worked at. And so it was a familiar vertical, familiar client base. And I went in to say, look, I don't want to run teams and accounts anymore. I want to grow the business. And so I partnered with the then controller, ultimately CFO and the CEO. And together, the three of us created this network of independent agencies all in the same vertical, which is that food and drink. So we had three competing agencies, just like a network might, a big you know, global network might. But our insight for growth was we felt like we were really good at building, managing, and leading agencies of a certain size, meaning under 35, really under 50, right? Because that's where funky things start happening and you start to bifurcate, the teams become competitive and you lose touch a little bit. So we set out, our aim was to build a network of agencies in specific verticals that were between 35 and 50 people with placed leadership, uh, creative account, and then ultimately digital, that trifecta, to run them with a bit of as much autonomy as we could let go. So we structured it as a holding company. Frankly, that worked out quite well for us. Okay. So just so I can get this clear. So this small agency was an offshoot of a larger agency. What was the ownership structure of that? Sole proprietor. So this gentleman left the big agency that we had all been at 25 years ago. I mean, this agency that I'm talking about, the big one had been in business since 1969. Okay. So this guy went out, set up on his own, and then you went yeah. and joined him. And then between you and the years. CFO, but, but did you have equity right. in that or were you, how did that work? Not until the ESOP. Okay. And so all of us had equity in it as a result of the ESOP. And the way that we structured our ESOP in particular was based on total comp. And so between myself and my wife, we had a better than 10% stake in the full network. So when it sold, it was it worked out quite well for us. For just sorry, for the benefit of people who don't know what an ESOP is, could you explain how that works? Of course, certainly. My apologies. You know, you get caught in our own vernacular. Employee stock ownership program or plan. Okay. And so what this does is it allows the owner, in our case, an individual, to allow the business to buy him out or her out, pardon me, over time. And we had structured a 100% buyout ESOP to the degree that all of the employees would own fractional pieces of the business through equity that articulated as stocks. And the owner then, after an eight-year period, would be bought out and 100% liquidated, you know, out on to whatever else he was going to go do, I guess. So it's an overtime by the business. The business buys itself, basically. Yeah. So nobody has to put any money into it. None of the employees put any money into it. They got stock options just because they work there. And again, predicated on their total comp, they got X percent of the whatever portion we were buying that year. Okay, so taking a step back, you joined this agency. And then how did you go about finding the competitors that you ended up acquiring? The agencies that made up the network, we didn't acquire, we built. Oh, I see. Interesting. Yeah, so... Again, back to the why it was relevant to give a history of this small town. When I left and then my wife left and then three of the other executive committee members left, I mean, we literally walked across the street. You know, I mean, it'd be no different than going from 
32nd Street up to 57th Street in the city, really. It's not, but it just happens to be in this small town. And, and so the client base began to shift. And so we had enough business to justify three separate agencies, all in different locations around town, just like you would in the city. You separate front doors, separate firewalls, separate servers, everything, right? So the holding company mentality is that we handled all of the overhead. Facilities, rent, legal, HR, payroll, all that kind of good stuff. And each of the leaders were charged with growing their clients and growing their people. That's it. We handled everything else. And my role in that was new business. And with 25 years experience in the industry, you know, it was a very comfortable fit, right? So I was able to then take clients and place them because each of these three agencies had different personalities. They were led by different people. It made it really great. I wasn't squeezed out of the opportunity because it didn't fit personally with the leadership. I had three very unique agencies that could handle this type of vertical work. So it was really quite a great scenario. Very interesting. So roughly about 35 people per agency. Is that is that right? 35 to 50. Yeah. More or less. Yeah. Okay. And what kind of revenues were each of them doing? So we've ranged anywhere from the smallest was in the 10 million range. And the largest was in the 12 to 15 to 18 range. Okay. Depending on the year. So as a group, it was about 50 million. Yeah. Just under. I mean, it was probably closer to 40, if we're honest, right? And after the ESOP and I exited, the general manager of that network kept me on as a consultant. And we did start to acquire well, we had bigger appetite, bigger budgets. We had a new owner. And so the capital was available to make the type of acquisitions that we were working towards as an ESOP. But we had a fiduciary responsibility to the shareholders, which changed things a little bit in our veracity to go acquire. So we built the agency network. And then our aim was to acquire and continue to grow. But before we could begin that first acquisition, we were acquired which really, frankly, okay. just accelerated our ability to go then acquire. So Okay, so the, had the ESOP completed by the point you were acquired? It had. Okay, so it was fully... Correct. Okay, it was employee-owned. And then talk to me a bit about that acquisition then. How did that come about? Were you approached or were you taking it to the market? Yeah, no, we absolutely were not taking it to the market. We didn't want to sell. We were ferociously defending our independent status and really were enjoying the fruits of the ESOP, frankly. However, <laughs> I got a phone call in November of 2014. I'll never forget it. And, you know, this was the time a lot of agencies were getting phone calls. You know, we're PE group or capital group, and we're looking to buy service businesses, and the agency business seems pretty exciting. Are you open to sell? And I really only had to say two words. Oh, we're at ESOP. And they'd say, ah, okay, forget it. That's too complicated, too wound up. I don't want to be involved. On to the next, right? So I really didn't have to work too hard to keep people off of us. However, this particular call, I said, well, you know, we're at ESOP. And he said, well, that doesn't scare me. I said, oh, well, okay, I'll take it to the board, you know, I'll see what they say. I did. And by the way, the board, there was three internal and three external board members voted. So they said, we're going to do it. And so, well, okay. So that's how that went. And the acquiring company was, they were specialized in food and drink services as well not only in retail sales and marketing agencies, but now in food service, which is the B2B aspect of that. 
in sales and we became their marketing arm of that. We got folded into a $2 billion enterprise and we became a bit of a, a blip on the radar. Yeah. Okay. Can you talk to me a bit about the structure of that deal? How was it put together? Yeah, sure. So the first thing that had to be satisfied out of that was while we were in the ESOP and it was rolling, we were three years into an eight-year, maybe four years into an eight-year buyout. The first thing that had to be satisfied was the finalization of the ESOP, the, the payout to the owner. Um, and so, nope, not a problem. They seemed to get through that just fine. The second was, which you know, I learned a lot on this one, they were very smart. They're very polished. The, all their growth was through acquisition over the past previous six years, I think, with um, private equity money. So, you know, high expectations, quick turn, pretty fast. And, you know, we were in a long game growth career, which is why the ESOP seemed great for us because we could then just control it and continue to grow it and shareholders, all that kind of good stuff. They wanted to see a lot quicker growth from us to the degree that they interviewed all of our key clients and then put back on us a degree of confidence in that growth that we, you know, assured them would be there and retracted that from the sale. So, I think we got hit with, I want to say it was like 27% discount to hold until the 18 months or 24 months passed after the acquisition to make sure that we held on to these core clients. And we did mostly. I mean, I was consulting at that point, but I think the final payments went through two and a half years after the action took place, the closing took place. And I think they regrouped almost all of it. So- and that's when the ESOP finally paid out to all the people, because that was the last. That was the last action of the acquisition, was the payout to the people of their shares. Okay, interesting. Yeah, which is why people just want to stay away from the ESOP because it's pretty messy. Right. So that was the point where you exited, but then you stayed on as, as a consultant. And then did you go out and do some acquisitions after that? Yeah. Okay. So in this food and beverage focused niche, we were lacking competitively in two areas, research and culinary. And we had our own chefs, so we had a product and menu development group, a small group. And frankly, the, the best in the industry was somebody that we went after for a target of acquisition, and it went through. And that added another 30 or 40 people all culinary professionals with a different type of service offering. Uh, so that really started to round out the portfolio of what was then a newly named entity under this acquired house and also the research. And the research allowed us to get into bigger pitches and bigger conversations, frankly. So the GM, who was my wife, actually, they kept her on to run the whole thing after I left, after we all left. I mean, I'm sorry, didn't mean to say it that way. She was wrangling down at that point, you know, within two years after the sale, it was probably at 30, 35 million. Um, and so, you know, ultimately grew it up to that almost 40, you know, before she got out. And then we, I don't know what happened to it after that. While I've got you here, I just wanted to let you know a little bit about me. After having acquired a TV commercials production company earlier this year, I'm currently doing a roll-up in the video production space, and I'm looking for production companies to join my group. 
If you don't think you're quite there yet, I'm also spending some of my time advising smaller businesses on business growth and exit planning. So if you want to chat to me about that, drop me a line on LinkedIn. Here endeth the advert. Okay, and then since then, you've gone into the consultancy world. I would love to hear just a bit about some of the businesses that you've worked with and some of the, are you sort of advising on both buy and sell side or can you, yeah, can you talk to me about some of your clients? Yeah, sure. So particular group down south in the US, young group, not agency people. They're more the vertical experts that got into the agency business had some backing and really wanted to grow through acquisition. And so we spent a decent amount of time engaging with firms that specialize themselves in finding suitors, did a lot of interviews, had a lot of meetings. Ultimately, what they learned was they're going to be able to grow it better than they were going to be able to acquire. So for them, the answer was they learned a lot and they decided to double down and invest in the right people. Versus trying to buy the growth, they were going to invest in the people that organically grow. And that was two years ago. So far, they're doing okay. I think that that was a good choice for them. Yeah, that's an interesting thing. We sort of had that debate at my previous company as well, because I was looking to go out and do some acquisitions. And that kind of back and forth came up quite a bit of how much does it cost to just go out and grow organically? And I'm interested in what the sort of thought process was and how they made that decision in the end. Yeah. So this particular group, again, a very niche area focused, and they were looking to acquire a much older agency. I think it was a 22 years agency. The owner was really wanted to change his, his life, didn't want to be in the agency business anymore. So he wanted to sell like and run, basically. <laughs> you know, He wanted to be out. And what they realized after further digging and investigation was that the culture was unraveling around anyway, and people were leaving and exiting some of his staff and some of his mid-level managers. And so they realized that the risk with him being gone was everybody was probably going to sleep. And so they weighed the risk of that, and they just said, look, I'd rather wait for them to actually leave and let me hire them and bring on some of the people to build this thing rather than have a payout for what's probably going to dry up. Or let me say that in a more kind way, they didn't have the confidence that it was going to be able to work, right? Mm -hmm. And so that was, I don't know, nine months, 10 months worth of back and forth and lots of meetings and interviewing people and just being able to read body language about how uncomfortable some of these people were about the thought of him staying versus leaving and all that. In the end, they didn't make the acquisition, but they did hire some of the employees who'd left. Now, they ultimately didn't hire some of the people who'd left. They realized that initially that was what they were thinking, right? Like, oh, we'll just wait for them to go and we'll, hire, we'll scoop them up. But the reality was that they were too sort of bruised and battered, if you will. You know, I think they said they ultimately, and I, frankly, I had a comment about that. It's like, I don't think you want that. Right. So let's start fresh. There are more out there. That's ultimately the, the way they went. And yeah, so they're doing fine. What kind of size business was it, the acquisition target that they were looking at? They were both small. So that the acquiring agency was probably two and a half million. I mean, it's very small. The agency they were looking to acquire was three and a half to four, right? Depending. And that was debatable. So the smaller was acquiring a larger. They had the backing. They could do it. And, you know, sort of an aggressive growth. But what they realized was there's too much at risk for that. 
different than a $20 million shop looking to pick up a $3.5 million shop because you could get it on just keeping the clients be fire. Yeah, that's right. But it's just too much risk when it's bigger. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting to me that even at three or four million or whatever this business was at, it's still lots and lots of risks inherent in that. And especially if you've got an owner that's leaving and a culture that is deteriorating around that, there's not much value there, actually. No. And so in the end, the type, the client base, as we dug and scratched further, it wasn't what it appeared to be in the beginning. And I think, you know, that's the same case with another group that I was working with down in Texas. They were looking to acquire a specialty on video photography to round out a focused vertical effort that they were in that included three separate verticals, but that's another story. Went through everything. The valuation was okay. You know, that's the other thing that in almost every one of these things, everybody counts their money a little bit differently, don't they then? And so trying to equalize the way that we count our coins is always a challenge. But in the end, we were able to say, you think it's worth X, I think it's worth, you know, X minus. And because of that, I'll agree to your price, but you've got to agree to my terms, which they ultimately didn't want. Initially, they wanted 100% payout. Absolutely not. That never happens. <laughs> no, I know. Yeah. That's what we said. I don't know you've been, I don't know who's coaching you on this, but you know, it shouldn't be your baker because I don't think they're on top of what's going on. And then ultimately, they go, well, we'll take 50%. I said, no. I said, we're going to do like, I mean, honestly, I wanted to go down to 20 and that was, everybody got me off of that. But it came down to terms. It wasn't so much the price. It came down to the terms and they, they said, you know, I think we'll just keep it and Okay, fine. And as it turned out, the industry went into a bit of a, a ditch after that anyway. So it's a good thing that we that we didn't pull the trigger, I think. I honestly net looking going into twenty four, I wouldn't mind going back at them now that I'm thinking about this <laughs> and see if now is a better time. I don't know. I that one part of it, that came down to terms. It was terms. It wasn't the money. Yeah. So this business in Texas that you were consulting with, were they in video production as well? No. Yeah. They were hiring that out locally. Okay. And this firm was in the Northeast. So it was, in a, it was a half a country away. I see. I see. So they thought that they needed some video and photography support. And ultimately, they were able to just keep doing it the way they've been doing it for 30 years. So. Okay. So that's you sort of consulting on the buy side of things. Have you consulted with any businesses that are preparing for a sale or have been taken to market? A little bit. And I say a little bit, because I really got in mostly around making sure that they're, you know, talking about how people count their money differently. People would come to me and say, look, I want to sell. Can you help me? Sure. Let's do a precursory look at the way that you're, let's value you. I mean, let me do that before we actually get proper evaluation, financial evaluation. And they were just literally such a mess that they didn't know where they were making money. They couldn't tell you what their margins were. Their cash flow was horrible. All the things that are red flags for a buyer were actually are big green flags for vipers. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm talking about. So I said, look, for you to get what you think you're worth, we need to clean up your house a little bit first. So we set out to do that, frankly. And by doing that, <laughs> to be honest, and this was, I don't know, three years ago, it's like check in with them still. But I said, so are you guys... Do want to sell? They said, no, actually, you know, we realized where we were making money. We we're actually making more money than we thought, and we we're better about keeping it. And so things are better. So now we're not. Well, okay. So it kind of enlightened them to 
you know, it's not that they wanted to sell necessarily. It was a, such a headache and they didn't know if they were doing well or not. It was causing them a great deal of anxiety because they didn't know where to go with it that they thought, well, they, they should just sell it. When quite honestly, what they needed to do is to get a little bit more deliberate about running an, an appropriately managed business. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, the things that you need to do to run an effective, appropriately managed business are the same things that you need to do to prepare a business for sale. So I can totally see how by putting some of that in place, they were able to make a bit more money and feel a bit more comfortable. I mean, in the valuation thing that you're talking about, like when you look at a business and do a valuation of them, what's your methodology? How would you approach that? Yeah. So at my end of the field where I have a little bit more experience, so not the financial side. So I mean, there are there are great people that can really do <laughs> a sort of financial autopsy that I wouldn't even begin to know what to look at. But mine's more about the cultural and positioning and experience and expertise of that agency. What do they really know? What is their true selling proposition? What's their value proposition? Why do clients choose them and stay? Why do associates choose them and stay? What is their rigor around new business? What is their rigor around growth? Those types of aspects. And just by observing and being around and asking specific types of questions and looking at their tools and seeing how they show up in market, I can offer a perspective on what needs to change or happen or be considered at least before they put their hat in the ring. So how much do you think those things actually affect a number in terms of evaluation? So the value, when we, not just me, look at the total valuation, there's a financial aspect of that for sure. But in the end, you know, if it's a fear-based, fear-managed group that throws money at people when they think they're going to leave, that's, I don't want any part of that. If they are not showing up well with their clients and there's a lot of turn and churn, I, I'm suspect of that. I want to know why. And I start digging them for that. I start breaking it down for that. They say they're profitable and it turns out they're making you know, an average of 7 or 8% EBITDA for the past six years. I'm saying you're not. It's a lifestyle business. And if, if you want to keep it, that's fine. Look, running a $4.5 million shop and puts a million bucks in my pocket every year, I don't know why you want to sell it anyway if you're not doing any work. But if you walk away from it and this thing falls apart because you're only making seven, eight, nine, ten percent, I don't want anything to do with that. So my evaluation has as much to do with the numbers as it does with the health of the agency that I want to buy or sell. And so I think that so I start dinging points off of the multiple for those reasons. And there are groups that I've worked with early on that have kind of worksheets for that. Yeah. And it's scoring and so you can get more academic about it, but in the end, it's as much about gut as anything for me. What kind of multiples, just in general terms, you see if it's a business doing 500,000 versus a million versus 2 million, kind of how are you seeing Indeed. the sort of the multiples yep. change? So depending on the type of agency too, right? So let's go with a, a just a sort of right down the middle of the road, a generalist geographically oriented of full service offerings and they're a $10 million shop and they're bringing in 10% EBITDA in the end. I'm like, okay, you know, it's, it's good cash. It's decent. You've been around for a long time. Everything else being 
okay, I would say that that is four multiple for me, right? And the reason it's a four versus a five or six plus is you're making 10%. I am of the impression that, you know, you start to get into that 15, 20% or more with track record of year after year growth on top of that, right? I'm pushing into five or six or more. If you're in that 35%, I'm a little bit scared that you're killing everybody. What's going to happen when the, the guardian splits and everybody just going to stop working? So I start to, there's a point at which it starts going back down. Interesting. So my sweet spot is right about 25% EBITDA with that showing at least 15 to 20% growth year over year, you know, and probably under a $50 million shop. I think that's manageable. I think it's digestible. I think there's a market for that. Yeah, no, that's very interesting. And what about under a million EBITDA? What kind of deals are you seeing happening at that end of the market? A million in revenue, you mean? No, EBITDA. So, um, so yeah, okay, yeah, a million in revenue, 200K EBITDA. What, what do you do with a service business that does that? So a million dollar revenue agency, mm-hmm. okay, let's use it loosely, so that you're talking five or six people at, yep. at max, and if you're 20%, you're maybe six people, right? You know, I prefer what a friend of mine refers to as an aqui-hire. Aqui-hire, that's like, what I was okay, going to say. Tell me more about that. I said, why don't we just fold you in? Let's make this easy. You know, here, tell you what, that two, that you're paying yourself 200K and you made 200K last year. Let's put you in at three. Let's see what it looks like. Let's fold everybody in. Let's appropriately, you know, assimilate them in you know, the culture and see where it goes in two years. And then if it does and we grew it, there's create some terms and there we go. And that, you know, to be honest, that's, that's not a bad way to, to exit, you know, if you're a million or under $2 million in revenue. Yeah. And I guess you just incentivize the owner to bring the client base across with them. 100%. And, you know, and there's a payout over a couple of years if it continues to grow. Yeah. I think it's really simple. And you just save a whole load of legal fees and negotiations around buying the actual legal entity, which isn't really necessary often. 100%, which could cost you their entire evening. Right. (laughs) Exactly. Great. So going into 2024, can't believe I'm saying that, but you know, what kind of, I don't know, are you sort of seeing any sort of trends? Are you seeing anything interesting going on in the marketplace? You know, what's interesting to watch, I don't know why, but cybersecurity has been in my inbox and feed so much lately. I feel like taking note of how well an agency is protected against breach is going to be important. And that may be another thing that I start to put on my checklist when I start looking at, you know, buying or selling. How secure are you? What's your regiment? How often are you getting penetration testing done? All that kind of good stuff. So that's one thing that I would have never brought up before. You know, having been held hostage, also not me, but when my wife ran the, the business, they she got held up and they paid the yeah. ransom. And it was horrible. It's super scary. Yeah. So there's that. The other, of course, is agency popping up. Yesterday's SEO specialists and 10 years ago's digital experts are now the AI experts. Those who can manipulate all the tools, they're staying on top of all the trends, they're bringing quicker, faster, cheaper ways of some of the commoditized or seem to be commoditized services that we have today in the industry as a service to not only agencies, but to straight to clients. So, We get a group of folks who are 
specialists in managing AI tools that we would use inside the agency in setting up a shop like an SEO shop would. And all of a sudden they have agencies that are clients, but they're going, they're three or four hires away from being an agency and going directly to the client. So I sort of got my eyes out for people who are hanging out a shingle, so to speak, that says that they're AI specialist agency to see what that really means. I haven't seen one yet. I haven't talked to one yet, but I'm sort of expecting to see that come on. And so I don't know, but that'd be my guess. That's interesting. So that would just be a group of people who understand the tools and are good at prompting who are providing creative services of any description, really, I suppose, of whatever is available to them. Yeah. And the reason I say it, you know, having been recently to like the TAN network of agencies and talking with them about this topic was, of course, a very popular topic among everybody around the world. And there were only just a handful, frankly, that had begun to experiment and play with it and get involved with it. And so knowing that they're losing bids, again, these generalist, localist, geographically centered types of agencies are a lot of them, let's be honest, most probably. They've got their book of business. They're, they're keeping going. They're happy. They're well, what they're going to find is they're going to start to get priced out because we're commoditizing and expediting services to the degree through some of these tools that they're going to get left behind. So those who are experimenting and playing with it and getting involved and teaching themselves how to use the tools, which by the way, frankly, is the wild, wild west out there. Nobody is really an expert yet, can at least keep up. Those who aren't, and by the way, it's usually the same ones who like said, oh, social media is going to be a fad. They're not going to monetize that. They're going to figure that out. I'm just going to leave that alone. Well, we all know what happened with that, right? So it's the same. The posture of an agency that has an exploratory culture, I think is going to be fine because we can keep up and be a close follower enough that we won't get lapsed. But there will be those who will be able to use the services of a AI specialist shop. So think of it, it's just a service specialist. Yeah. And it looks very much like a traditional agency, I guess, because you've just got employees doing creative work and they just happen to be using AI tools, you know. Exactly. The way that I could see that happening is if I've got a creative shop that isn't necessarily technically inclined or they don't really want to lead into the tools or they're such purists that they just simply won't. And we all know those people do. That the AI tools are only as good as what we put into them. And if we don't have a concept to put in, we're not going to get anything out. So standing on their own, this is why I say there are three or four key agency hires away from being an agency. Today, they're a service provider of tool management. But with a few key employee hires, account service and strategy and planning, and there we go. And now I'm an agency. So I can see that coming. Right. So yeah, tell me a bit about your book. Yeah, thanks. Great. Glad you asked. So it's called Permission to Win. Very 80s approach to things. I realized bit dated, but that's sort of always how I looked at new business and business development in all the places that I had worked over the years. So I decided to put it into one place. And so the book is entitled Permission to Win, How to Grow Your Advertising Agency with Confidence. And you can get it on Amazon or in the bookstore. So I'm always interested within people who've written these business books, like has it helped you get speaking slots? Has it helped you win clients? How's it been useful for you? Yeah, that's interesting. My whole aim with writing was to speak more because frankly, I feel like I'm a better right. orator than a writer. But I would tell you, it was really liberating to write it all down. So this is what I did during COVID. 
Right. Okay. That's smart. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, you know, it kept me busy and it certainly has been fun to share with people when they say, you know, what should take on new business? They say, well, I actually have a bit of a manual for that, you know, and I can hand them a book. And it, it, so it was never really to be sort of, you know, sell many books but as much as it was to be able to share the story. And it's a place to begin a conversation with people that I do consult with on, on new business and business development growth and things like that. So it's been great. It's, it's worked out exactly as I had hoped it would. Great. Yeah. Well, I'll yeah. check it out. I'll get yeah. myself a copy. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much for that. Uh, a wide ranging yeah. conversation about all sorts of things. If people want to get in touch with you or learn more about what you do, where do they go for that? Yeah. My website is austinamplifies.com. And that's Austin like the city of Texas, amplifies, plural.com. Or they could reach me at Doug at austinamplifies.com anytime. Wonderful. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. This was fun. Thank you very much for listening to the Exit Plan podcast. I'm going to be introducing an M&A Q&A section to the podcast. So if you've got any questions that you'd like answered, drop me a line on LinkedIn or send me an email on barnaby at foxcogroup.com and I'll make sure that your question gets answered in a future episode. I'm also planning some live events in 2024, bringing together experts in the M&A space and the Exit Plan community. So if you're interested in early access to those, follow the Exit Plan podcast page on LinkedIn and sign up to our mailing list. I've left a link for that in the show notes. If you enjoyed today's episode, please do leave us a review. It really helps other people find us. And if you're wondering what's next for you and your business and want to chat about an Exit Plan, drop me a line.